Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A Chill Books original. Moral Letters to Lucilius or Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. Translated by Richard M. Gummer. Letter 66. On Various Aspects of Virtue. 1. I have just seen my former schoolmate Clarenus for the first time in many years. You need not wait for me to add that he is an old man. But I assure you that I found him hale in spirit and sturdy, although he is wrestling with a frail and feeble body. For nature acted unfairly when she gave him a poor domicile for so rare a soul. Or perhaps it was because she wished to prove to us that an absolutely strong and happy mind can lie hidden under any exterior. Be that as it may, Chloranus overcomes all these hindrances, and by despising his own body has arrived at a stage where he can despise other things also. 2. The poet who sang worth shows more pleasing in a form that's fair, is, in my opinion, mistaken. For virtue needs nothing to set it off. It is its own great glory, and it hallows the body in which it dwells. At any rate, I have begun to regard Chloranus in a different light. He seems to me handsome, and as well set up in body as in mind. 3. A great man can spring from a hovel. So can a beautiful and great soul from an ugly and insignificant body. For this reason nature seems to me to breed certain men of this stamp with the idea of proving that virtue springs into birth in any place whatever. Had it been possible for her to produce souls by themselves and naked, she would have done so. As it is, nature does a still greater thing, for she produces certain men who, though hampered in their bodies, nonetheless break through the obstruction. 4. I think Chloranus has been produced as a pattern, that we might be enabled to understand that the soul is not disfigured by the ugliness of the body, but rather the opposite, that the body is beautified by the comeliness of the soul. Now, though Chloranus and I have spent very few days together, we have nevertheless had many conversations, which I will at once pour forth and pass on to you. 5. The first day we investigated this problem, how can goods be equal if they are of three kinds? For certain of them, according to our philosophical tenets, are primary, such as joy, peace, and the welfare of one's country. Others are of the second order, molded in an unhappy material, such as the endurance of suffering and self-control during severe illness. We shall pray outright for the goods of the first class. 
For the second class we shall pray only if the need shall arise. There is still a third variety, as, for example, a modest gait, a calm and honest countenance, and a bearing that suits the man of wisdom. 6. Now how can these things be equal when we compare them? If you grant that we ought to pray for the one and avoid the other, if we would make distinctions among them, we had better return to the first good and consider what its nature is. The soul that gazes upon truth, that is skilled in what should be sought and what should be avoided, establishing standards of value not according to opinion, but according to nature, the soul that penetrates the whole world and directs its contemplating gaze upon all its phenomena, paying strict attention to thoughts and actions, equally great and forceful, superior alike to hardships and blandishments, yielding itself to neither extreme of fortune, rising above all blessings and tribulations, absolutely beautiful, perfectly equipped with grace as well as with strength, healthy and sinewy, unruffled, undismayed, one which no violence can shatter, one which acts of chance can neither exalt nor depress. A soul like this is virtue itself. 7. There you have its outward appearance. If it should ever come under a single view and show itself once in all its completeness. But there are many aspects of it. They unfold themselves according as life varies and as actions differ. But virtue itself does not become less or greater, for the supreme good cannot diminish, nor may virtue retrograde. Rather is it transformed, now into one quality and now into another, shaping itself according to the part which it is to play. 8. Whatever it has touched, it brings into likeness with itself, and dies with its own color. It adorns our actions, our friendships, and sometimes entire households which it has entered and set in order. Whatever it has handled it forthwith makes lovable, notable, admirable. Therefore the power and the greatness of virtue cannot rise to greater heights, because increase is denied to that which is superlatively great. You will find nothing straighter than the straight, nothing truer than the truth, and nothing more temperate than that which is temperate. 9. Every virtue is limitless, for limits depend upon definite measurements. Constancy cannot advance further, any more than fidelity, or truthfulness, or loyalty. What can be added to that which is perfect? Nothing otherwise that was not perfect to which something has been added, nor can anything be added to virtue either, for if anything can be added thereto, it must have contained a defect. Honor also permits of no addition, for it is honorable because of the very qualities which I have mentioned. What then? Do you think that propriety, justice, lawfulness, do not also belong to the same type, and that they are kept within fixed limits? The ability to increase is proof that a thing is still imperfect. 10. The good, in every instance, is subject to these same laws. The advantage of the state and that of the individual are yoked together. Indeed, it is as impossible to separate them as to separate the commendable from the desirable. Therefore, virtues are mutually equal. And so are the works of virtue, and all men who are so fortunate as to possess these virtues. 
11. But, since the virtues of plants and of animals are perishable, they are also frail and fleeting and uncertain. They spring up, and they sink down again. And for this reason they are not rated at the same value. But to human virtues only one rule applies. For right reason is single and of but one kind. Nothing is more divine than the divine, or more heavenly than the heavenly. 12. Mortal things decay, fall, are worn out, grow up, are exhausted, and replenish. Hence, in their case, in view of the uncertainty of their lot, there is inequality. But of things divine the nature is one. Reason, however, is nothing else than a portion of the divine spirit set in a human body. If reason is divine, and the good in no case lacks reason, then the good in every case is divine. And furthermore, there is no distinction between things divine. Hence there is none between goods either. Therefore it follows that joy and a brave and yielding endurance of torture are equal goods. For in both there is the same greatness of soul relaxed and cheerful in the one case, in the other combative and braced for action. 13. What? Do you not think that the virtue of him who bravely storms the enemy's stronghold is equal to that of him who endures a siege with the utmost patience? Great is Scipio when he invests Numancia, and constrains and compels the hands of an enemy whom he could not conquer, to resort to their own destruction. Great also are the souls of the defenders, men who know that, as long as the path to death lies open, the blockade is not complete. Men who breathe their last in the arms of liberty. In like manner, the other virtues are also equal as compared with one another. Tranquility, simplicity, generosity, constancy, equanimity, endurance. For underlying them all is a single virtue that which renders the soul straight and unswerving. 14. What then, you say? Is there no difference between joy and unyielding endurance of pain? None at all as regards the virtues themselves. Very great, however, in the circumstances in which either of these two virtues is displayed. In the one case, there is a natural relaxation and loosening of the soul. In the other there is an unnatural pain. Hence these circumstances, between which a great distinction can be drawn, belong to the category of indifferent things, but the virtue shown in each case is equal. 15. Virtue is not changed by the matter with which it deals. If the matter is hard and stubborn, it does not make the virtue worse. If pleasant and joyous, it does not make it better. Therefore, virtue necessarily remains equal. For, in each case, what is done is done with equal uprightness, with equal wisdom, and with equal honor. Hence the states of goodness involved are equal and it is impossible for a man to transcend these states of goodness by conducting himself better, either the one man in his joy, or the other amid his suffering. And two goods, neither of which can possibly be better, are equal. 16. For if things which are extrinsic to virtue can either diminish or increase virtue, then that which is honorable ceases to be the only good. If you grant this, honor has wholly perished. And why? Let me tell you, 
it is because no act is honorable that is done by an unwilling agent that is compulsory. Every honorable act is voluntary. A lawyer with reluctance, complaints, cowardice, or fear, and it loses its best characteristic self-approval. That which is not free cannot be honorable. For fear means slavery. 17. The honorable is wholly free from anxiety and is calm. If it ever objects, laments, or regards anything as an evil, it becomes subject to disturbance and begins to flounder about them in great confusion. For on one side the semblance of right calls to it, on the other the suspicion of evil drags it back. Therefore, when a man is about to do something honorable, he should not regard any obstacles as evils, even though he regard them as inconvenient, but he should will to do the deed and do it willingly, for every honorable act is done without commands or compulsion. It is an alloyed and contains no admixture of evil. 18. I know what you may reply to me at this point. Are you trying to make us believe that it does not matter whether a man feels joy or whether he lies upon the rack and tires out his torturer? I might say in answer, Epicurus also maintains that the wise man though he is being burned in the bull of Phalaris, will cry out, displeasant, and concerns me not at all. Why need you wonder, if I maintain that he who reclines at a banquet and the victim who stoutly withstands torture possess equal goods, when Epicurus maintains a thing that is harder to believe, namely, that it is pleasant to be roasted in this way. 19. But the reply which I do make, is that there is great difference between joy and pain. If I am asked to choose, I shall seek the former and avoid the latter. The former is according to nature, the latter contrary to it. So long as they are rated by the standard, there is a great gulf between. But when it comes to a question of the virtue involved, the virtue in each case is the same, whether it comes through joy or through sorrow. 20. Vexation and pain and other inconveniences are of no consequence, for they are overcome by virtue. Just as the brightness of the sun dims all lesser lights, so virtue, by its own greatness, shatters and overwhelms all pains, annoyances, and wrongs. And wherever its radiance reaches, all lights which shine without the help of virtue are extinguished. And inconveniences, when they come in contact with virtue, play no more important a part than does a storm cloud at sea. 21. This can be proved to you by the fact that the good man will hasten and hesitatingly to any noble deed. Even though he be confronted by the hangman, the torturer, and the stake, he will persist, regarding not what he must suffer, but what he must do. And he will entrust himself as readily to an honorable deed as he would to a good man. He will consider it advantageous to himself, safe, propitious, and he will hold the same view concerning an honorable deed, even though it be fraught with sorrow and hardship, as concerning a good man who is poor or wasting away in exile. 22. Come now. Contrast a good man who is rolling in wealth with a man who has nothing, except that in himself he has all things. They will be equally good though they experience unequal fortune. This same standard, as I have remarked, 
is to be applied to things as well as to men. Virtue is just as praiseworthy if it dwells in a sound and free body, as in one which is sickly or in bondage. 23. Therefore, as regards your own virtue also, you will not praise it any more. If fortune has favored it by granting you a sound body, then if fortune has endowed you with a body that is crippled in some member, since that would mean rating a master low because he is dressed like a slave. For all those things over which chance holds sway are chattels, money, person, position. They are weak, shifting, prone to perish, and of uncertain tenure. On the other hand, the works of virtue are free and unsubdued, neither more worthy to be sought when fortune treats them kindly, nor less worthy when any adversity weighs upon them. 24. Now friendship in the case of men corresponds to desirability in the case of things. You would not, I fancy, love a good man if he were rich any more than if he were poor. Nor would you love a strong and muscular person more than one who was slender and of delicate constitution. Accordingly, neither will you seek or love a good thing that is mirthful and tranquil more than one that is full of perplexity and toil. 25. Or, if you do this, you will, in the case of two equally good men, care more for him who is neat and well-groomed than for him who is dirty and unkempt. You would next go so far as to care more for a good man who is sound in all his limbs and without blemish, than for one who is weak or purblind. And gradually your fastidiousness would reach such a point that, of two equally just and prudent men, you would choose him who has long curling hair. Whenever the virtue in each one is equal, the inequality in their other attributes is not apparent, for all other things are not parts but merely accessories. 26. Would any man judge his children so unfairly as to care more for a healthy son than for one who was sickly, or for a tall child of unusual stature more than for one who was short or of middling height? Wild beasts show no favoritism among their offspring. They lie down in order to suckle all alike. Birds make fair distribution of their food. Ulysses hastens back to the rocks of his Ithaca as eagerly as Agamemnon speeds to the kingly walls of Mycenae. For no man loves his native land because it is great. He loves it because it is his own. 27. And what is the purpose of all this? That you may know that virtue regards all her works in the same light, as if they were her children showing equal kindness to all, and still deeper kindness to those which encounter hardships. For even parents lean with more affection towards those of their offspring for whom they feel pity. Virtue, too, does not necessarily love more deeply those of her works which she beholds in trouble and under heavy burdens. But, like good parents, she gives them more of her fostering care. 28. Why is no good greater than any other good? It is because nothing can be more fitting than that which is fitting, and nothing more level than that which is level. You cannot say that one thing is more equal to a given object than another thing. Hence also nothing is more honorable than that which is honorable. 29. Accordingly, if all the virtues are by nature equal, the three varieties of goods are equal. This is what I mean. 
There is an equality between feeling joy with self-control and suffering pain with self-control. The joy in the one case does not surpass in the other the steadfastness of soul that gulps down the groan when the victim is in the clutches of the torture. Goods of the first kind are desirable, while those of the second are worthy of admiration. And in each case they are nonetheless equal, because whatever inconvenience attaches to the latter is compensated by the qualities of the good, which is so much greater. 30. Any man who believes them to be unequal is turning his gaze away from the virtues themselves and is surveying mere externals. True goods have the same weight and the same width. The spurious sort contain much emptiness. Hence, when they are weighed in the balance, they are found wanting, although they look imposing and grand to the gaze. 31. Yes, my dear Lucilius, the good which true reason approves is solid and everlasting. It strengthens the spirit and exalts it, so that it will always be on the heights. But those things which are thoughtlessly praised and are goods in the opinion of the mob merely puff us up with empty joy. And again, those things which are feared as if they were evils merely inspire trepidation in men's minds. For the mind is disturbed by the semblance of danger, just as animals are disturbed. 32. Hence it is without reason that both these things distract and sting the spirit. The one is not worthy of joy, nor the other of fear. It is reason alone that is unchangeable, that holds fast to its decisions. For reason is not a slave to the senses, but a ruler over them. Reason is equal to reason, as one straight line to another. Therefore virtue also is equal to virtue. Virtue is nothing else than right reason. All virtues are reasons. Reasons are reasons, if they are right reasons. If they are right, they are also equal. 33. As reason is, so also are actions. Therefore all actions are equal. For since they resemble reason, they also resemble each other. Moreover, I hold that actions are equal to each other in so far as they are honorable and right actions. There will be, of course, great differences according as the material varies, as it becomes now broader and now narrower, now glorious and now base, now manifold in scope and now limited. However, that which is best in all these cases is equal. They are all honorable. 34. In the same way, all good men, in so far as they are good, are equal. There are, indeed, differences of age. One is older, another younger. Of body, one is comely, another is ugly. Of fortune, this man is rich, that man poor. This one is influential, powerful, and well-known to cities and peoples. That man is unknown to most, and is obscure. But all, in respect of that wherein they are good, are equal. 35. The senses do not decide upon things good and evil. They do not know what is useful and what is not useful. They cannot record their opinion unless they are brought face to face with a fact. They can neither see into the future nor recollect the past. And they do not know what results from what. But it is from such knowledge that a sequence and succession of actions is woven and a unity of life is created. 
a unity which will proceed in a straight course. Reason, therefore, is the judge of good and evil. That which is foreign and external she regards as dross, and that which is neither good nor evil she judges as merely accessory, insignificant and trivial. For all her good resides in the soul. 36. But there are certain goods which reason regards as primary, to which she addresses herself purposely. These are, for example, victory, good children, and the welfare of one's country. Certain others she regards as secondary. These become manifest only in adversity, for example, equanimity in enduring severe illness or exile. Certain goods are indifferent. These are no more according to nature than contrary to nature, as, for example, a discreet gait and a sedate posture in a chair. For sitting is an act that is not less according to nature than standing or walking. 37. The two kinds of goods which are of a higher order are different. The primary are according to nature, such as deriving joy from the dutiful behavior of one's children and from the well-being of one's country. The secondary are contrary to nature, such as fortitude in resisting torture or in enduring thirst when illness makes the vitals feverish. 38. What then, you say? Can anything that is contrary to nature be a good? Of course not. But that in which this good takes its rise is sometimes contrary to nature. For being wounded, wasting away over a fire, being afflicted with bad health, such things are contrary to nature. But it ties in accordance with nature for a man to preserve an indomitable soul amid such distresses. 39. To explain my thought briefly, the material with which a good is concerned is sometimes contrary to nature, but a good itself never is contrary, since no good is without reason, and reason is in accordance with nature. What, then, you ask, is reason? It is copying nature. And what, you say, is the greatest good that man can possess? It is to conduct oneself according to what nature wills. 40. There is no doubt, says the objector, that peace affords more happiness when it has not been assailed than when it has been recovered at the cost of great slaughter. There is no doubt also, he continues, that health which has not been impaired affords more happiness than health which has been restored to soundness by means of force, as it were, and by endurance of suffering, after serious illnesses that threaten life itself. And similarly, there will be no doubt that joy is a greater good than a soul's struggle to endure to the bitter end the torments of wounds or burning at the stake. 41. By no means. For things that result from hazard admit of wide distinctions, since they are rated according to their usefulness in the eyes of those who experience them. But with regard to goods, the only point to be considered is that they are in agreement with nature. And this is equal in the case of all goods. When at a meeting of the Senate we vote in favor of someone's motion, it cannot be said, is more in accord with the motion than be. All alike vote for the same motion. I make the same statement with regard to virtues. They are all in accord with nature. And I make it with regard to goods also. They are all in accord with nature. 42. One man dies young, 
another in old age, and still another in infancy, having enjoyed nothing more than a mere glimpse out into life. They have all been equally subject to death, even though death has permitted the one to proceed farther along the pathway of life, has cut off the life of the second in his flower, and has broken off the life of the third at its very beginning. 43. Some get their release at the dinner table. Others extend their sleep into the sleep of death. Some are blotted out during dissipation. Now contrast with these persons individuals who have been pierced by the sword, or bitten to death by snakes, or crushed in ruins, or tortured piecemeal out of existence by the prolonged twisting of their sinews. Some of these departures may be regarded as better, some as worse. But the act of dying is equal in all. The methods of ending life are different, but the end is one and the same. Death has no degrees of greater or less, for it has the same limit in all instances, the finishing of life. 44. The same thing holds true, I assure you, concerning goods. You will find one amid circumstances of pure pleasure, another amid sorrow and bitterness. The one controls the favors of fortune, the other overcomes her onslaughts, which is equally a good. Although the one travels a level and easy road, and the other a rough road, and the end of them all is the same, they are goods, they are worthy of praise, they accompany virtue and reason. Virtue makes all the things that it acknowledges equal to one another. 45. You need not wonder that this is one of our principles. We find mentioned in the works of Epicurus two goods, of which his supreme good, or blessedness, is composed, namely, a body free from pain and a soul free from disturbance. These goods, if they are complete, do not increase. For how can that which is complete increase? The body is, let us suppose, free from pain. What increase can there be to this absence of pain? The soul is composed and calm. What increase can there be to this tranquility? 46. Just as fair weather, purifying into the purest brilliancy, does not admit of a still greater degree of clearness. So, when a man takes care of his body and of his soul, weaving the texture of his good from both, his condition is perfect, and he has found the consummation of his prayers. If there is no commotion in his soul or pain in his body, whatever delights fall to his lot over and above these two things do not increase his supreme good. They merely season it, so to speak, and add spice to it. For the absolute good of man's nature is satisfied with peace in the body and peace in the soul. 47. I can show you at this moment in the writings of Epicurus a graded list of goods just like that of our own school. For there are some things, he declares, which he prefers should fall to his lot, such as bodily rest free from all inconvenience and relaxation of the soul as it takes delight in the contemplation of its own goods. And there are other things which, though he would prefer that they did not happen, he nevertheless praises and approves, for example, the kind of resignation, in times of ill health and serious suffering, to which I alluded a moment ago, and which Epicurus displayed on that last and most blessed day of his life. 
for he tells us that he had to endure excruciating agony from a diseased bladder and from an ulcerated stomach, so acute that it permitted no increase of pain. And yet, he says, that day was nonetheless happy. And no man can spend such a day in happiness unless he possesses the supreme good. 48. We therefore find mention, even by Epicurus, those goods which one would prefer not to experience, which, however, because circumstances have decided thus, must be welcomed and approved and placed on a level with the highest goods. We cannot say that the good which has rounded out a happy life, the good for which Epicurus rendered thanks in the last words he uttered, is not equal to the greatest. 49. Allow me, excellent Lucilius, to utter a still bolder word. If any goods could be greater than others, I should prefer those which seem harsh to those which are mild and alluring, and should pronounce them greater. For it is more of an accomplishment to break one's way through difficulties than to keep joy within bounds. 50. It requires the same use of reason, I am fully aware, for a man to endure prosperity well and also to endure misfortune bravely. That man may be just as brave who sleeps in front of the ramparts without fear of danger when no enemy attacks the camp, as the man who, when the tendons of his legs have been severed, holds himself up on his knees and does not let fall his weapons. But it is to the blood-stained soldier returning from the front that men cry, Well done, thou hero! And therefore I should bestow greater praise upon those goods that have stood trial, and show courage, and have fought it out with fortune. 51. Should I hesitate whether to give greater praise to the maimed and shriveled hand of Mucius than to the uninjured hand of the bravest man in the world? There stood Mucius, despising the enemy and despising the fire, and watched his hand as it dripped blood over the fire on his enemy's altar, until poor Senna, envying the fame of the hero whose punishment he was advocating, ordered the fire to be removed against the will of the victim. 52. Why should I not reckon this good among the primary goods, and deem it in so far greater than those other goods which are unattended by danger and have made no trial of fortune, as it is a rarer thing to have overcome a foe with a hand lost than with a hand armed? What then, you say, shall you desire this good for yourself? Of course I shall, for this is a thing that a man cannot achieve unless he can also desire it. 53. Should I desire, instead, to be allowed to stretch out my limbs for my slaves to massage, or to have a woman, or a man changed into the likeness of a woman, pull my finger joints? I cannot help believing that Mucius was all the more lucky because he manipulated the flames as calmly as if he were holding out his hand to the manipulator. He had wiped out all his previous mistakes. He finished the war unarmed in Maine. And with that stump of a hand, he conquered two kings. Farewell. Letter 67. On ill health and endurance of suffering. 1. If I may begin with a commonplace remark, spring is gradually disclosing itself. But though it is rounding into summer, when you would expect hot weather, it has kept rather cool, and one cannot yet be sure of it, for it often slides back into winter weather. Do you wish to know how uncertain it still is? 
I do not yet trust myself to a bath which is absolutely cold. Even at this time I break its chill. You may say that this is no way to show the endurance either of heat or of cold. Very true, dear Lucilius. But at my time of life one is at length contented with the natural chill of the body. I can scarcely thaw out in the middle of summer. Accordingly, I spend most of the time bindled up. 2. And I thank old age for keeping me fastened to my bed. Why should I not thank old age on this account? That which I ought not to wish to do, I lack the ability to do. Most of my converse is with books. Whenever your letters arrive, I imagine that I am with you, and I have the feeling that I am about to speak my answer, instead of writing it. Therefore let us together investigate the nature of this problem of yours, just as if we were conversing with one another. 3. You ask me whether every good is desirable. You say, if it is a good to be brave under torture, to go to the stake with a stout heart, to endure illness with resignation, it follows that these things are desirable, but I do not see that any of them is worth praying for. At any rate I have as yet known of no man who has paid a vow by reason of having been cut to pieces by the rod, or whisted out of shape by the gout, or made taller by the rack. 4. My dear Lucilius, you must distinguish between these cases. You will then comprehend that there is something in them that is to be desired. I should prefer to be free from torture. But if the time comes when it must be endured, I shall desire that I may conduct myself therein with bravery, honor, and courage. Of course I prefer that war should not occur. But if war does occur, I shall desire that I may nobly endure the wounds, the starvation, and all that the exigency of war brings. Nor am I so mad as to crave illness. But if I must suffer illness, I shall desire that I may do nothing which shows lack of restraint and nothing that is unmanly. The conclusion is, not that hardships are desirable, but that virtue is desirable, which enables us patiently to endure hardships. 5. Certain of our school think that, of all such qualities, a stout endurance is not desirable, though not to be deprecated either, because we ought to seek by prayer only the good which is an alloy, peaceful, and beyond the reach of trouble. Personally, I do not agree with them. And why? First, because it is impossible for anything to be good without being also desirable. Because, again, if virtue is desirable, and if nothing that is good lacks virtue, then everything good is desirable. And lastly, because a brave endurance even under torture is desirable. 6. At this point I ask you, is not bravery desirable, and yet bravery despises and challenges danger. The most beautiful and most admirable part of bravery is that it does not shrink from the state, advances to meet wounds, and sometimes does not even avoid the spear, but meets it with opposing breast. If bravery is desirable, so is patient endurance of torture. For this is a part of bravery. Only sift these things, as I have suggested then there will be nothing which can lead you astray. For it is not mere endurance of torture, but brave endurance, that is desirable. I therefore desire that brave endurance. And this is virtue. 7. 
But, you say, whoever desired such a thing for himself? Some prayers are open and outspoken when the requests are offered specifically. Other prayers are indirectly expressed when they include many requests under one title. For example, I desire a life of honor. Now a life of honor includes various kinds of conduct. It may include the chest in which Regulus was confined, or the wound of Cato which was torn open by Cato's own hand, or the exile of Rutilius, or the cup of poison which removed Socrates from jail to heaven. Accordingly, in praying for a life of honor, I have prayed also for those things without which, on some occasions, life cannot be honorable. 8. O thrice and four times blessed were they, who underneath the lofty walls of Troy, met happy death before their parents' sides. What does it matter whether you offer this prayer for some individual, or admit that it was desirable in the past? 9. Decius sacrificed himself for the state. He set spurs to his horse and rushed into the midst of the foe, seeking death. The second Decius, rivaling his father's valor, reproducing the words which had become sacred and already household words, dashed into the thickest of the fight, anxious only that his sacrifice might bring omen of success, and regarding a noble death as a thing to be desired. Do you doubt, then, whether it is best to die glorious and performing some deed of valor? 10. When one endures torture bravely, one is using all the virtues. Endurance may perhaps be the only virtue that is on view and most manifest, but bravery is there too, and endurance and resignation and long-suffering are its branches. There, too, is foresight, for without foresight no plan can be undertaken. It is foresight that advises one to bear as bravely as possible the things one cannot avoid. There also is steadfastness, which cannot be dislodged from its position, which the wrench of no force can cause to abandon its purpose. There is the whole inseparable company of virtues. Every honorable act is the work of one single virtue, but it is in accordance with the judgment of the whole council and that which is approved by all the virtues, even though it seems to be the work of one alone, is desirable. 11. What? Do you think that those things only are desirable which come to us amid pleasure and ease, and which we bedeck our doors to welcome? There are certain goods whose features are forbidding. There are certain prayers which are offered by a throng, not of men who rejoice but of men who bow down reverently and worship. 12. Was it not in this fashion, think you, that Regulus prayed that he might reach Carthage? Clothe yourself with a hero's courage, and withdraw for a little space from the opinions of the common man. Form a proper conception of the image of virtue, a thing of exceeding beauty and grandeur. This image is not to be worshipped by us with incense or garlands, but with sweat and blood. 13. Behold Marcus Cato, laying upon that hallowed breast his unspotted hands, and tearing apart the wounds which had not gone deep enough to kill him. Which, pray, shall you say to him, I hope all will be as you wish, and I am grieved, or shall it be good fortune in your undertaking? 14. In this connection I think of our friend Demetrius, 
who calls an easy existence, enterable by the attacks of fortune, a dead sea. If you have nothing to stir you up and rouse you to action, nothing which will test your resolution by its threats and hostilities. If you recline in unshaken comfort, it is not tranquility. It is merely a flat calm. 15. The Stoic Italis was wont to say, I should prefer that fortune keep me in her camp rather than in the lap of luxury. If I am tortured, but bear it bravely, all is well. If I die, but die bravely, it is also well. Listen to Epicurus. He will tell you that it is actually pleasant. I myself shall never apply an effeminate word to an act so honorable and austere. If I go to the state, I shall go and beat him. 16. Why should I not regard this as desirable not because the fire burns me, but because it does not overcome me? Nothing is more excellent or more beautiful than virtue. Whatever we do in obedience to her orders is both good and desirable. Farewell. Letter 68. On Wisdom and Retirement. 1. I fall in with your plan. Retire and conceal yourself in repose, but at the same time conceal your retirement also. In doing this, you may be sure that you will be following the example of the Stoics, if not their precept, but you will be acting according to their precept also. You will thus satisfy both yourself and any Stoic you please. 2. We Stoics do not urge men to take up public life in every case, or at all times, or without any qualification. Besides, when we have assigned to our wise man that field of public life which is worthy of him, in other words, the universe, he is then not apart from public life. Even if he withdraws, nay, perhaps he has abandoned only one little corner thereof and has passed over into greater and wider regions. And when he has been set in the heavens, he understands how lowly was the place in which he sat when he mounted the curule chair or the judgment seat. Lay this to heart that the wise man is never more active in affairs than when things divine as well as things human have come within his ken. 3. I now return to the advice which I set out to give you, that you keep your retirement in the background. There is no need to fasten a placard upon yourself with the words, philosopher and quietist. Give your purpose some other name, call it health and bodily weakness, or mere laziness. To boast of our retirement is but idle self-seeking. 4. Certain animals hide themselves from discovery by confusing the marks of their footprints in the neighborhood of their lairs. You should do the same. Otherwise, there will always be someone dogging your footsteps. Many men pass by that which is visible and peer after things hidden and concealed. A locked room invites the thief. Things which lie in the open appear cheap. The housebreaker passes by that which is exposed to view. This is the way of the world, and the way of all ignorant men. They crave to burst in upon hidden things. It is therefore best not to vaunt one's retirement. 5. It is, however, a sort of vaunting to make too much of one's concealment and of one's withdrawal from the sight of men. So and so has gone into his retreat at Tarentum. That other man has shut himself up in Naples. 
This third person for many years has not crossed the threshold of his own house. So advertise one's retirement is to collect a crowd. 6. When you withdraw from the world, your business is to talk with yourself, not to have men talk about you. But what shall you talk about? Do just what people are fond of doing when they talk about their neighbors. Speak ill of yourself when by yourself. Then you will become accustomed both to speak and to hear the truth. Above all, however, ponder that which you come to feel is your greatest weakness. 7. Each man knows best the defects of his own body. And so one relieves his stomach by vomiting. Another props it up by frequent eating. Another drains and purges his body by periodic fasting. Those whose feet are visited by pain abstain either from wine or from the bath. In general, men who are careless in other respects go out of their way to relieve the disease which frequently afflicts them. So it is with our souls. There are in them certain parts which are, so to speak, on the sick list. And to these parts the cure must be applied. 8. What, then, am I myself doing with my leisure? I am trying to cure my own sores. If I were to show you a swollen foot, or an inflamed hand, or some shriveled sinews in a withered leg, you would permit me to lie quiet in one place and to apply lotions to the diseased member. But my trouble is greater than any of these, and I cannot show it to you. The abscess, or ulcer, is deep within my breast. Pray, pray, do not commend me, do not say, what a great man. He has learned to despise all things. Condemning the madnesses of man's life, he has made his escape. I have condemned nothing except myself. 9. There is no reason why you should desire to come to me for the sake of making progress. You are mistaken if you think that you will get any assistance from this quarter. It is not a physician that dwells here, but a sick man. I would rather have you say, on leaving my presence, I used to think him a happy man and a learned one, and I had pricked up my ears to hear him. But I have been defrauded. I have seen nothing, heard nothing which I crave and which I came back to hear. If you feel thus and speak thus, some progress has been made. I prefer you to pardon rather than envy my retirement. 10. Then you say, Is it retirement, Seneca, that you are recommending to me? You will soon be falling back upon the maxims of Epicurus. I do recommend retirement to you, but only that you may use it for greater and more beautiful activities than those which you have resigned. To knock at the hardy doors of the influential, to make alphabetical lists of childless old men, to wield the highest authority in public life. This kind of power exposes you to hatred. I short-lived and, if you rate it at its true value, is tawdry. 11. One man shall be far ahead of me as regards his influence in public life, another in salary as an army officer and in the position which results from this, another in the throng of his clients. But it is worthwhile to be outdone by all these men, provided that I myself can outdo fortune, and I am no match for her in the throng. She has the greater backing. 12. Would that in earlier days you had been minded to follow this purpose. Would that we were not discussing the happy life in plain view of death. But even now let us have no delay. 
For now we can take the word of experience, which tells us that there are many superfluous and hostile things. For this we should long since have taken the word of reason. 13. Let us do what men are wont to do when they are late in setting forth, and wish to make up for lost time by increasing their speed, let us ply the spur. Our time of life is the best possible for these pursuits, for the period of boiling and foaming is now past. The faults that were uncontrolled in the first fierce heat of youth far now weaken, and but little further effort is needed to extinguish them. 14. And when, you ask, will that profit you which you do not learn until your departure? And how will it profit you? Precisely in this way, that I shall depart a better man. You need not think, however, that any time of life is more fitted to the attainment of a sound mind than that which has gained the victory over itself by many trials and by long and oft-repeated regret for past mistakes, and its passions assuaged, has reached a state of health. This is indeed the time to have acquired this good. He who has attained wisdom in his old age, has attained it by his years. Farewell. Letter 69. On Rest and Restlessness. 1. I do not like you to change your headquarters and scurry about from one place to another. My reasons are, first, that such frequent flitting means an unsteady spirit, and the spirit cannot through retirement grow into unity unless it has ceased from its inquisitiveness and its wanderings. To be able to hold your spirit in check, you must first stop the runaway flight of the body. 2. My second reason is that the remedies which are most helpful are those which are not interrupted. You should not allow your quiet, or the oblivion to which you have consigned your former life, to be broken into. Give your eyes time to unlearn what they have seen, and your ears to grow accustomed to more wholesome words. Whenever you stir abroad you will meet, even as you pass from one place to another, things that will bring back your old cravings. 3. Just as he who tries to be rid of an old love must avoid every reminder of the person once held dear for nothing grows again so easily as love. Similarly, he who would lay aside his desire for all the things which he used to crave so passionately, must turn away both eyes and ears from the objects which he has abandoned. The emotions soon return to the attack. 4. At every turn they will notice before their eyes an object worth their attention. There is no evil that does not offer inducements. Avarice promises money luxury, a varied assortment of pleasures, ambition, a purple robe and applause, and the influence which results from applause, and all that influence can do. 5. Vices tempt you by the rewards which they offer. But in the life of which I speak, you must live without being paid. Scarcely will a whole lifetime suffice to bring our vices into subjection and to make them accept the yoke swollen as they are by long-continued indulgence, and still less if we cut into our brief span by any interruptions. Even constant care and attention can scarcely bring any one undertaking to full completion. 6. If you will give ear to my advice, ponder and practice this, how to welcome death, or even, if circumstances commend that course, 
to invite it. There is no difference whether death comes to us or whether we go to death. Make yourself believe that all ignorant men are wrong when they say, it is a beautiful thing to die one's own death, but there is no man who does not die his own death. What is more, you may reflect on this thought. No one dies except on his own day. You are throwing away none of your own time. For what you leave behind does not belong to you. Farewell. Letter 70 on the proper time to slip the cable. 1. After a long space of time I have seen your beloved Pompeii. I was thus brought again face to face with the days of my youth. And it seemed to me that I could still do, nay, had only done a short time ago, all the things which I did there when a young man. 2. We have sailed past life, Lucilius, as if we were on a voyage, and just as when at sea, to quote from our poet Virgil, lands and towns are left astern. Even so, on this journey where time flies with the greatest speed, we put below the horizon first our boyhood and then our youth, and then the space which lies between young manhood and middle age and borders on both, and next, the best years of old age itself. Last of all, we begin to cite the general born of the race of man. 3. Fools that we are, we believe this born to be a dangerous reef. But it is the harbor where we must someday put in, which we may never refuse to enter. And if a man has reached this hobble in his early years, he has no more right to complain than a sailor who has made a quick voyage. For some sailors, as you know, are tricked and held back by sluggish winds and grow weary and sick of the slow-moving calm, while others are carried quickly home by steady gales. 4. You may consider that the same thing happens to us. Life has carried some men with the greatest rapidity to the harbor, the harbor they were bound to reach even if they tarried on the way, while others it has fretted and harassed. To such a life, as you are aware, one should not always claim. For mere living is not a good, but living well. Accordingly, the wise man will live as long as he ought, not as long as he can. 5. He will mark in what place, with whom and how he is to conduct his existence, and what he is about to do. He always reflects concerning the quality, and not the quantity, of his life. As soon as there are many events in his life that give him trouble and disturb his peace of mind, he sets himself free, and this privilege is his. Not only when the crisis is upon him, but as soon as fortune seems to be playing him false, then he looks about carefully and sees whether he ought or ought not to end his life on that account. He holds that it makes no difference to him whether his taking off be natural or self-inflicted, whether it comes later or earlier. He does not regard it with fear, as if it were a great loss, for no man can lose very much when but a driblet remains. 6. It is not a question of dying earlier or later, but of dying well or ill. And dying well means escape from the danger of living ill. That is why I regard the words of the well-known Rodian as most unmanly. This person was thrown into a cage by his tyrant, and fed there like some wild animal. And when a certain man advised him to end his life by fasting, he replied, A man may hope for anything while he has life. 
7. This may be true, but life is not to be purchased at any price. No matter how great or how well assured certain rewards may be, I shall not strive to attain them at the price of a shameful confession of weakness. Shall I reflect that fortune has all power over one who lives, rather than reflect that she has no power over one who knows how to die? 8. There are times, nevertheless, when a man, even though certain death impends and he knows that torture is in store for him, will refrain from lending a hand to his own punishment. To himself, however, he would lend a hand. It is folly to die through fear of dying. The executioner is upon you. Wait for him. Why anticipate him? Why assume the management of a cruel task that belongs to another? Do you grudge your executioner his privilege? Or do you merely relieve him of his task? 8. There are times, nevertheless, when a man, even though certain death impends and he knows that torture is in store for him, will refrain from lending a hand to his own punishment. To himself, however, he would lend a hand. It is folly to die through fear of dying. The executioner is upon you. Wait for him. Why anticipate him? Why assume the management of a cruel task that belongs to another? Do you grudge your executioner his privilege? Or do you merely relieve him of his task? 9. Socrates might have ended his life by fasting. He might have died by starvation rather than by poison. But instead of this, he spent 30 days in prison awaiting death. Not with the idea everything may happen, or so long an interval has room for many a hope, but in order that he might show himself submissive to the laws and make the last moments of Socrates an edification to his friends. What would have been more foolish than to scorn death, and yet fear poison? 10. Scribonia, a woman of the stern old type, was an aunt of Drusus Libo. This young man was as stupid as he was well-born, with higher ambitions than anyone could have been expected to entertain in that epoch, or a man like himself in any epoch at all. When Libo had been carried away ill from the Senate House in his letter, though certainly with a very scanty train of followers. For all his kinsfolk undutifully deserted him. When he was no longer a criminal but a corpse, he began to consider whether he should commit suicide or await death. Scribonia said to him, What pleasure do you find in doing another man's work? But he did not follow her advice. He laid violent hands upon himself, and he was right, after all. For when a man is doomed to die in two or three days at his enemy's pleasure, he is really doing another man's work if he continues to live. 11. No general statement can be made, therefore, with regard to the question whether, when a power beyond our control threatens us with death, we should anticipate death or await it. For there are many arguments to pull us in either direction. If one death is accompanied by torture, and the other is simple and easy, why not snatch the latter? Just as I shall select my ship when I am about to go on a voyage or my house when I propose to take a residence, so I shall choose my death when I am about to depart from life. 12. Moreover, just as a long-drawn-out life does not necessarily mean a better one, so a long-drawn-out death necessarily means a worse one. 
There is no occasion when the soul should be humored more than at the moment of death. Let the soul depart as it feels itself impelled to go. Whether it seeks the sword or the halter or some draft that attacks the veins, let it proceed and burst the bonds of its slavery. Every man ought to make his life acceptable to others besides himself, but has death to himself alone. The best form of death is the one we like. 13. Men are foolish who reflect thus. One person will say that my conduct was not brave enough, another that I was too headstrong, a third that a particular kind of death would have betokened more spirit. What you should really reflect is, I have under consideration a purpose with which the talk of men has no concern. Your sole aim should be to escape from fortune as speedily as possible. Otherwise, there will be no lack of persons who will think ill of what you have done. 14. You can find men who have gone so far as to profess wisdom and yet maintain that one should not offer violence to one's own life, and hold it accursed for a man to be the means of his own destruction. We should wait, say they, for the end decreed by nature. But one who says this does not see that he is shutting off the path to freedom. The best thing which eternal law ever ordained was that it allowed to us one entrance into life, but many exits. 15. Must I await the cruelty either of disease or of man, when I can depart through the midst of torture and shake off my troubles? This is the one reason why we cannot complain of life. It keeps no one against his will. Humanity is well situated, because no man is unhappy except by his own fault. Live, if you so desire. If not, you may return to the place whence you came. 16. You have often been cupped in order to relieve headaches. You have had veins cut for the purpose of reducing your weight. If you would pierce your heart, a gaping wound is not necessary. A lancet will open the way to that great freedom, and tranquility can be purchased at the cost of a pinprick. What, then? Is it which makes us lazy and sluggish? None of us reflects that some day he must depart from this house of life. Just so old tenants are kept from moving by fondness for a particular place and by custom, even in spite of ill treatment. 17. Would you be free from the restraint of your body? Live in it as if you were about to leave it. Keep thinking of the fact that some day you will be deprived of this tenure then you will be more brave against the necessity of departing. But how will a man take thought of his own end, if he craves all things without end? 18. And yet there is nothing so essential for us to consider. For our training in other things is perhaps superfluous. Our souls have been made ready to meet poverty, but our riches have held out. We have armed ourselves to scorn pain. But we have had the good fortune to possess sound and healthy bodies, and so have never been forced to put this virtue to the test. We have taught ourselves to endure bravely the loss of those we love. But fortune has preserved to us all whom we love. 19. It is in this one matter only that the day will come which will require us to test our training. You need not think that none but great men have had the strength to burst the bonds of human servitude, 
You need not believe that this cannot be done except by a Kato, Kato, who with his hand dragged forth the spirit which he had not succeeded in freeing by the sword. Nay, men of the meanest lot in life have by a mighty impulse escaped to safety, and when they were not allowed to die at their own convenience, or to shoot themselves in their choice of the instruments of death, they have snatched up whatever was lying ready to hand and by sheer strength have turned objects which were by nature harmless into weapons of their own. 20. For example, there was lately in a training school for wild beast gladiators a German who was making ready for the morning exhibition. He withdrew in order to relieve himself, the only thing which he was allowed to do in secret and without the presence of a guard. While so engaged, he seized the stick of wood, tipped with a sponge, which was devoted to the vilest uses, and stuffed it, just as it was, down his throat. Thus he blocked up his windpipe, and choked the breath from his body. That was truly to insult death. 21. Yes, indeed. It was not a very elegant or becoming way to die. But what is more foolish than to be over nice about dying? What a brave fellow. He surely deserved to be allowed to choose his fate. How bravely he would have wielded a sword! With what courage he would have hurled himself into the depths of a sea, or down a precipice! Cut off from resources on every hand, he yet found a way to furnish himself with death, and with a weapon for death. Hence you can understand that nothing but the will need postpone death. Let each man judge the deed of this most zealous fellow as he likes, provided we agree on this point that the foulest death is preferable to the fairest slavery. 22. Inasmuch as I began with an illustration taken from humble life, I shall keep on with that sort. For men will make greater demands upon themselves, if they see that death can be despised even by the most despised class of men, the Catos, the Scipios, and the others whose names we are wont to hear with admiration, we regard as beyond the sphere of imitation. But I shall now prove to you that the virtue of which I speak is found as frequently in the gladiator's training school as among the leaders in a civil war. 23. Lately a gladiator, who had been sent forth to the morning exhibition, was being conveyed in a cart along with the other prisoners. Nodding as if he were heavy with sleep, he let his head fall over so far that it was caught in the spokes. Then he kept his body in position long enough to break his neck by the revolution of the wheel. So he made his escape by means of the very wagon which was carrying him to his punishment. 24. When a man desires to burst forth and take his departure, nothing stands in his way. It is an open space in which nature guards us. When our plight is such as to permit it, we may look about us for an easy exit. If you have many opportunities ready to hand, by means of which you may liberate yourself, you may make a selection and think over the best way of gaining freedom. But if a chance is hard to find, instead of the best, snatch the next best, even though it be something unhoard of, something new. If you do not lack the courage, you will not lack the cleverness to die. 25. See how even the lowest class of slaves when suffering goads him on, is aroused and discovers a way to deceive even the most watchful guards. 
He is truly great who not only has given himself the order to die, but has also found the means. I have promised you, however, some more illustrations drawn from the same games. 26. During the second event in a Shamsi fight, one of the barbarians sank deep into his own throat a spear which had been given him for use against his foe. Why, oh why, he said, have I not long ago escaped from all this torture and all this mockery? Why should I be armed and yet wait for death to come? This exhibition was all the more striking because of the lesson men learned from it that dying is more honorable than killing. 27. What, then? If such a spirit is possessed by abandoned and dangerous men, shall it not be possessed also by those who have trained themselves to meet such contingencies by long meditation, and by reason, the mistress of all things? It is reason which teaches us that fate has various ways of approach, but the same end, and that it makes no difference at what point the inevitable event begins. 28. Reason, too, advises us to die, if we may, according to our taste. If this cannot be, she advises us to die according to our ability, and to seize upon whatever means shall offer itself for doing violence to ourselves. It is criminal to live by robbery. But, on the other hand, it is most noble to die by robbery. Farewell. Letter 71 on the Supreme Good. 1. You are continually referring special questions to me, forgetting that a vast stretch of sea sunders us. Since, however, the value of advice depends mostly on the time when it is given, it must necessarily result that by the time my opinion on certain matters reaches you, the opposite opinion is the better. For advice conforms to circumstances, and our circumstances are carried along or rather whirled along. Accordingly, advice should be produced at short notice. And even this is too late. It should grow while we work, as the saying is. And I propose to show you how you may discover the method. 2. As often as you wish to know what is to be avoided or what is to be sought, consider its relation to the supreme good, to the purpose of your whole life. For whatever we do ought to be in harmony with this. No man can set in order the details unless he has already set before himself the chief purpose of his life. The artist may have his colors all prepared, but he cannot produce a likeness unless he has already made up his mind what he wishes to paint. The reason we make mistakes is because we all consider the parts of life, but never life as a whole. 3. The archer must know what he is seeking to hit. Then he must tame and control the weapon by his skill. Our plans miscarry because they have no aim. When a man does not know what harbor he is making for, no wind is the right wind. Chance must necessarily have great influence over our lives, because we live by chance. 4. It is the case with certain men, however, that they do not know that they know certain things. Just as we often go searching for those who stand beside us, so we are apt to forget that the goal of the supreme good lies near us. To infer the nature of this supreme good, one does not need many words or any roundabout discussion. It should be pointed out with the forefinger, so to speak, and not be dissipated into many parts. 
For what good is there in breaking it up into tiny bits, when you can say, the supreme good is that which is honorable, besides, and you may be still more surprised at this, that which is honorable is the only good. All other goods are alloyed and debased. 5. If you once convince yourself of this, and if you come to love virtue devotedly, for mere loving is not enough, anything that has been touched by virtue will be fraught with blessing and prosperity for you, no matter how it shall be regarded by others. Torture, if only as you lie suffering, you are more calm in mind than your very torture. Illness, if only you curse not fortune and yield not to the disease in short. All those things which others regard as ills will become manageable and will end in good. If you succeed in rising above them, let this once be clear, that there is nothing good except that which is honorable, and all hardships will have a just title to the name of goods, when once virtue has made them honorable. 6. Many think that we Stoics are holding out expectations greater than our human lot admits of. And they have a right to think so, for they have regard to the body only. But let them turn back to the soul, and they will soon measure man by the standard of God. Rouse yourself, most excellent Lucilius, and leave off all this wordplay of the philosophers, who reduce a most glorious subject to a matter of syllables, and lower and wear out the soul by teaching fragments. Then you will become like the men who discovered these precepts, instead of those who by their teaching do their best to make philosophy seem difficult rather than great. 7. Socrates, who recalled the whole of philosophy to rules of conduct, and asserted that the highest wisdom consisted in distinguishing between good and evil, said, Follow these rules, if my words carry weight with you, in order that you may be happy, and let some men think you even a fool. Allow any man who so desires to insult you and work you wrong. But if only virtue dwells with you, you will suffer nothing. If you wish to be happy, if you would be in good faith a good man, let one person or another despise you. No man can accomplish this unless he has come to regard all goods as equal, for the reason that no good exists without that which is honorable, and that which is honorable is in every case equal. 8. You may say, What then? Is there no difference between Cato's being elected Pretu and his failure at the polls? Or whether Cato is conquered or conqueror in the battle line of Phasalia? And when Cato could not be defeated, though his party met defeat, was not this goodness of his equal to that which would have been his if he had returned victorious to his native land and arranged a peace? Of course it was. For it is by the same virtue that evil fortune is overcome and good fortune is controlled. Virtue, however, cannot be increased or decreased. Its stature is uniform. 9. But, you will object. Nias Pompey will lose his army. The patricians, those noblest patterns of the state's creation, and the front rank men of Pompey's party, a senate under arms, will be routed in a single engagement. The ruins of that great oligarchy will be scattered all over the world. One division will fall in Egypt, another in Africa, and another in Spain. And the poor state 
will not be allowed even the privilege of being ruined once for all. 10. Yes, all this may happen. Juba's familiarity with every position in his own kingdom may be of no avail to him. Of no avail the resolute bravery of his people when fighting for their king. Even the men of Utica, crushed by their troubles, may waver in their allegiance. And the good fortune which ever attended men of the name of Scipio may desert Scipio in Africa. But long ago destiny saw to it that Cato should come to no harm. 11. He was conquered in spite of it all. Well, you may include this among Cato's failures. Cato will bear with an equally stout heart anything that thwarts him of his victory, as he bore that which thwarted him of his praetorship. The day whereon he failed of election, he spent in play. The night wherein he intended to die, he spent in reading. He regarded in the same light both the loss of his praetorship and the loss of his life. He had convinced himself that he ought to endure anything which might happen. 12. Why should he not suffer, bravely and calmly, a change in the government? For what is free from the risk of change? Neither earth, nor sky, nor the whole fabric of our universe. Though it be controlled by the hand of God, it will not always preserve its present order. It will be thrown from its course in days to come. 13. All things move in accord with their appointed times. They are destined to be born, to grow, and to be destroyed. The stars which you see moving above us, and this seemingly immovable earth to which we cling and on which we are set, will be consumed and will cease to exist. There is nothing that does not have its old age. The intervals are merely unequal at which nature sends forth all these things towards the same goal. Whatever is will cease to be, and yet it will not perish, but will be resolved into its elements. 14. To our minds, this process means perishing, for we behold only that which is nearest. Our sluggish mind, under allegiance to the body, does not penetrate to borns beyond. Were it not so, the mind would endure with greater courage its own ending and that of its possessions. If only it could hope that life and death, like the whole universe about us, go by turns, that whatever has been put together is broken up again, that whatever has been broken up is put together again, and that the eternal craftsmanship of God, who controls all things, is working at this task. 15. Therefore the wise man will say just what a Marcus Cato would say, after reviewing his past life. The whole race of man, both that which is and that which is to be, is condemned to die. Of all the cities that at any time have held sway over the world, and of all that have been the splendid ornaments of empires not their own, men shall some day ask where they were, and they shall be swept away by destructions of various kinds. Some shall be ruined by wars, others shall be wasted away by inactivity and by the kind of peace which ends in sloth or by that vice which is fraught with destruction even for mighty dynasties, luxury. All these fertile plains shall be buried out of sight by a sudden overflowing of the sea, or a slipping of the soil, as it settles to lower levels, shall draw them suddenly into a yawning chasm. Why then should I be angry or feel sorrow, if I precede the general destruction by a tiny interval of time? 16. 
that great souls comply with God's wishes and suffer unhesitatingly whatever fate the law of the universe ordains. For the soul at death is either sent forth into a better life, destined to dwell with deity amid greater radiance and calm, or else, at least, without suffering any harm to itself. It will be mingled with nature again, and will return to the universe. Therefore Cato's honorable death was no less a good than his honorable life, since virtue admits of no stretching. Socrates used to say that verity and virtue were the same. Just as truth does not grow, so neither does virtue grow, for it has its due proportions and is complete. 17. You need not, therefore, wonder that goods are equal, both those which are to be deliberately chosen and those which circumstances have imposed. For if you once adopt the view that they are unequal, deeming, for instance, a brave endurance of torture as among the lesser goods, you will be including it among the evils also. You will pronounce Socrates unhappy in his prison, Cato unhappy when he reopens his wounds with more courage than he showed in inflicting them, and Regulus the most ill-starred of all when he pays the penalty for keeping his word even with his enemies. And yet no man, even the most effeminate person in the world, has ever dared to maintain such an opinion. For though such persons deny that a man like Regulus is happy, yet for all that they also deny that he is wretched. 18. The earlier academics do indeed admit that a man is happy even amid such tortures, but do not admit that he is completely or fully happy. With this view we cannot in any wise agree, for unless a man is happy, he has not attained the supreme good and the good which is supreme admits of no higher degree, if only virtue exists within this man, and if adversity does not impair his virtue, and if, though the body be injured, the virtue abides in harm, and it does abide, for I understand virtue to be high-spirited and exalted, so that it is aroused by anything that molests it. 19. This spirit, which young men of noble breeding often assume, when they are so deeply stirred by the beauty of some honorable object that they despise all the gifts of chance, is assuredly infused in us and communicated to us by wisdom. Wisdom will bring the conviction that there is but one good that which is honorable, that this can neither be shortened nor extended, any more than a carpenter's rule, with which straight lines are tested, can be bent. Any change in the rule means spoiling the straight line. 20. Applying, therefore, this same figure to virtue, we shall say, virtue also is straight and admits of no bending. What can be made more tense than a thing which is already rigid? Such is virtue, which passes judgment on everything, but nothing passes judgment on virtue. And if this rule, virtue, cannot itself be made more straight, Neither can the things created by virtue be in one case straighter and in another less straight, for they must necessarily correspond to virtue, hence they are equal. 21. What you say? Do you call reclining at a banquet and submitting to torture equally good? Does this seem surprising to you? You may be still more surprised at the following, that reclining at a banquet is an evil, while reclining on the rack eyes a good, if the former act is done in a shameful, 
and the latter in an honorable manner. It is not the material that makes these actions good or bad. It is the virtue. All acts in which virtue has disclosed itself are of the same measure and value. 22. At this moment the man who measures the souls of all men by his own is shaking his fist in my face because I hold that there is a parity between the goods involved in the case of one who passes sentence honorably and of one who suffers sentence honorably, or because I hold that there is a parity between the goods of one who celebrates a triumph and of one who, unconquered in spirit, is carried before the victor's chariot. For such critics think that whatever they themselves cannot do is not done. They pass judgment on virtue in the light of their own weaknesses. 23. Why do you marvel if it helps a man, and on occasion even pleases him, to be burned, wounded, slain, or bound in prison, to a luxurious man? A simple life is a penalty. To a lazy man, work is punishment. The dandy pities the diligent man. To the slothful, studies are torture. Similarly, we regard those things with respect to which we are all infirm of disposition, as hard and beyond endurance, forgetting what a torment it is to many men to abstain from wine or to be routed from their beds at break of day. These actions are not essentially difficult. It is we ourselves that are soft and flabby. 24. We must pass judgment concerning great matters with greatness of soul. Otherwise, that which is really our fault will seem to be their fault. So it is that certain objects which are perfectly straight, when sunk in water appear to the onlooker as bent or broken off. It matters not only what you see, but with what eyes you see it. Our souls are too dull of vision to perceive the truth. 25. But give me an unspoiled and sturdy-minded young man. He will pronounce more fortunate one who sustains on unbending shoulders the whole weight of adversity, who stands out superior to fortune. It is not a cause for wonder that one is not tossed about when the weather is calm. Reserve your wonderment for cases where a man is lifted up, when all others sink and keeps his footing when all others are prostrate. 25. But give me an unspoiled and sturdy-minded young man. He will pronounce more fortunate one who sustains on unbending shoulders the whole weight of adversity, who stands out superior to fortune. It is not a cause for wonder that one is not tossed about when the weather is calm. Reserve your wonderment for cases where a man is lifted up, when all others sink and keeps his footing when all others are prostrate. 26. What element of evil is there in torture and in the other things which we call hardships? It seems to me that there is this evil, that the mind sags and bends and collapses. But none of these things can happen to the sage. He stands erect under any low. Nothing can subdue him. Nothing that must be endured annoys him. For he does not complain that he has been struck by that which can strike any man. He knows his own strength. He knows that he was born to carry burdens. 27. I do not withdraw the wise man from the category of man, nor do I deny to him the sense of pain as though he were a rock that has no feelings at all. I remember that he is made up of two parts. The one part is irrational. It is this that may be bitten, burned or hurt. The other part is rational. 
It is this which holds resolutely to opinions, is courageous and unconquerable. In the latter is situated man's supreme good. Before this is completely attained, the mind wavers in uncertainty. Only when it is fully achieved is the mind fixed and steady. 28. And so when one has just begun, or is on one's way to the heights and is cultivating virtue, or even if one is drawing near the perfect good but has not yet put the finishing touch upon it, one will retrograde at times and there will be a certain slackening of mental effort. For such a man has not yet traversed the doubtful ground. He is still standing in slippery places. But the happy man, whose virtue is complete, loves himself most of all when his bravery has been submitted to the severest test, and when he not only endures but welcomes that which all other men regard with fear, if it is the price which he must pay for the performance of a duty which honor imposes, and he greatly prefers to have men say of him, how much more noble, rather than how much more lucky. 29. And now I have reached the point to which your patient waiting summons me. You must not think that our human virtue transcends nature. The wise man will tremble, will feel pain, will turn pale, for all these are sensations of the body. Where, then, is the abode of utter distress, of that which is truly an evil? In the other part of us, no doubt, if it is the mind that these trials drag down, forced to a confession of its servitude, and cause to regret its existence. 30. The wise man, indeed, overcomes fortune by his virtue. But many who profess wisdom are sometimes frightened by the most unsubstantial threats. And at this stage it is a mistake on our part to make the same demands upon the wise man and upon the learner. I still exhort myself to do that which I recommend. But my exhortations are not yet followed. And even if this were the case, I should not have these principles so ready for practice or so well trained that they would rush to my assistance in every crisis. 31. Just as wool takes up certain colors at once, while there are others which it will not absorb unless it is soaked and steeped in them many times, so other systems of doctrine can be immediately applied by men's minds after once being accepted. But this system of which I speak, unless it has gone deep and has sunk in for a long time, and has not merely colored but thoroughly permeated the soul, does not fulfill any of its promises. 32. The matter can be imparted quickly and in very few words. Virtue is the only good. At any rate, there is no good without virtue. And virtue itself is situated in our nobler part, that is, the rational part. And what will this virtue be? A true and never swerving judgment. For they from will spring all mental impulses and by its agency every external appearance that stirs our impulses will be clarified. 33. It will be in keeping with this judgment to judge all things that have been colored by virtue as goods and as equal goods. Bodily goods are, to be sure, good for the body, but they are not absolutely good. There will indeed be some value in them, but they will possess no genuine merit for they will differ greatly. Some will be less, others greater. 34. 
and we are constrained to acknowledge that there are great differences among the very followers of wisdom. One man has already made so much progress that he dares to raise his eyes and look fortune in the face, but not persistently, for his eyes soon drop, dazzled by her overwhelming splendor. Another has made so much progress that he is able to match glances with her, that is, unless he has already reached the summit and is full of confidence. 35. That which is short of perfection must necessarily be unsteady, at one time progressing, at another slipping or growing faint, and it will surely slip back unless it keeps struggling ahead. For if a man slackens at all in zeal and faithful application, he must retrograde. No one can resume his progress at the point where he left off. 36. Therefore let us press on and persevere. There remains much more of the road than we have put behind us. But the greater part of progress is the desire to progress. I fully understand what this task is. It is a thing which I desire, and I desire it with all my heart. I see that you also have been aroused and are hastening with great zeal towards infinite beauty. Let us, then, hasten. Only on these terms will life be a boon to us. Otherwise, there is delay, and indeed disgraceful delay, while we busy ourselves with revolting things. Let us see to it that all time belongs to us. This, however, cannot be unless first of all our own selves begin to belong to us. 37. And when will it be our privilege to despise both kinds of fortune? When will it be our privilege, after all the passions have been subdued and brought under our own control, to utter the words I have conquered? Do you ask me whom I have conquered? Neither the Persians, nor the far-off Medes, nor any warlike race that lies beyond the Dai. Not these, but greed, ambition, and the fear of death that has conquered the conquerors of the world. Farewell. Chill Books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals, and subtitles to help you stay engaged.